Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If you're listening to this podcast or if you read Tech Dirt, you probably already know most of my views on the importance of the First Amendment and free speech and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but also, you probably know how complex a topic uh, free speech can actually be. Uh, and there have been an increasing number of important discussions about the role of intermediaries or platforms and how they impact free speech and the First Amendment. And one of the things that has become much clearer of late is that the Internet presents a number of what I would call really sort of tricky issues, ones that even many First Amendment advocates did not necessarily fully expect or comprehend uh, before everything started to get crazier and crazier. Now, obviously, the First Amendment only applies to government regulation of speech, which makes things like prior restraint uh, prior, yeah, prior restraint by courts a clear violation. Uh, private internet platforms, on the other hand, are obviously not the government, and thus if they make decisions on an individual expressing themselves on the platform, it doesn't directly implicate the First Amendment. But at the same time, many of these platforms have grown so big and often so powerful that they often feel like they're a part of the so-called public square, and that starts to raise some new issues, uh, some of which we've discussed on previous podcasts. And then when you combine uh, another previous podcast topic, the rise of so-called fake news on the internet, and uh, some start to look more closely at the First Amendment and how it intersects with internet platforms. And in many ways, it's challenging the theories that we all have about both the internet itself and the First Amendment and how it relates to free speech. And part of that might be that we're applying the wrong framework in thinking about these things because the internet is so very different than what we've dealt with in the past. Now, someone who has thought deeply about this issue is Nabia Sayed, the assistant general counsel at BuzzFeed, uh, who recently published a really excellent piece for the Yale Journal Re Review on this topic entitled Real Talk About Fake News Towards a Better Theory for Platform Government Governance. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to that article. Uh, and it does a, a really good job, I think, of laying out our existing theories on free speech online, including the concept of the open marketplace of ideas and explaining why uh, these different theories may not always be the best way to think about free speech on the Internet. Now, this is a challenging topic, as I said uh, up top, uh, for a variety of reasons. And unfortunately, I think too many people sort of resort to very simplistic platitudes when discussing free speech online. And most of those simplistic platitudes don't really hold up to very much scrutiny. And that's part of the reason why I think it's so important to discuss these uh, and think about the nuances and ins and outs of this a little bit more carefully and why I'm happy to have such a strong First Amendment scholar in Nabiha on the show to discuss these ideas. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Cool. Well, 
Let's let's start out by digging into the paper. Um, you know, it starts out by listing out three sort of First Amendment theories or free speech theories um, that people use that they sort of, you know, discuss these things. And do, do we want to just start out with kind of a brief overview of, of those different different theories that you discuss? Yeah, for sure. And before I jump into those, I just wanted to say that I think, you know, you described it, but we've had a lot of hand wringing about the public square and the First Amendment. And the truth is that both of those things are rooted in a really particular historical moment, which is really early to middle of last century. And that had very specific social conditions of what was happening, the professionalization of the media, sort of centralization of the media, a lot of other historical forces. And so it's really important to root these theories, um, all three of which are sort of competing in different scholars and government actors have adopted different ones at different times. But it's important to root those in that time and and understand, you know, if they don't work now, that's not because they're bankrupt. There's a but there's questions <laughs> about how changing social conditions might affect the lens through which we see these concepts. And the most famous concept, right, the one that people talk about all the time, is the marketplace of ideas. And right. and I I think of the marketplace of ideas as sort of this building where everyone is supposed to go in and some, you know, people are fighting over some ideas, others are fighting over others. And the theory is, right, um, that the best idea should rise like cream to the top, right? <laughs> everyone, after all this discussion and de- deliberation, which can be sloppy, um, the the, be- the truth is what comes out, right, uh, through deliberation, mm-hmm. which is a very... Um, traditional liberal idea, like discourse and deliberation yields truth. Um, But anyone who's read YouTube comments might understand that, you know, (laughs) the the sensational rises to the top too, right? It's not necessarily the most well-reasoned, the most persuasive uh, concept that really gets all the attention in the room. It can be the most sensational. Um, and I think that's sort of exacerbated when you realize in some context that not everyone's reading the same thing. So if we're supposed to be in this room and discussing all these ideas in this you know noisy marketplace, what happens if we're not all talking about the same concept? Um, right. What if we have very different understandings of the facts underpinning those concepts? And the marketplace of ideas doesn't really tell us anything about how to behave once we're inside the marketplace. It just says somehow this will work. And I, I think of the marketplace of ideas as the most optimistic of theories. It really presumes that people are going to be good, good faith, deliberative actors. And um, I think we can accept that that's probably not the case in the world that we live in or ever, right? Or ever. <laughs> right. But uh, it, it was a very particular vision. And the thing with the marketplace, too, is you have to remember not that many people had access to national or international platforms for speaking out at the time where the marketplace really came into being. It was the the Abrams case in 1919 that first talked about the marketplace of ideas. And you got like, who's talking in 1919? Like, who has the power to talk at that at that level? Not everybody, certainly not. And there's certainly there was nothing equivalent to you know, Twitter or Facebook or something like that to do it. So that's kind of the marketplace, which we all know about. Um, The second idea that I think we see bandied about a lot is this sort of autonomy theory. And the autonomy theory says, look, it's really important for people to be able to speak their own piece, speak their truth and speak out because that's what makes you a full human, right? That's what gives you agency. It's morally the right thing to do to have free speech and for the government not to restrict you. 
mm-hmm. which kind of goes part and parcel with the marketplace of ideas, but it has even less let's say, infrastructure around how truth is supposed to happen. The autonomy right. theory is kind of like, you do you, dude. Like, <laughs> you, and like, right. we'll sort this out somehow. It'll be fine. Which, again, like, doesn't really give us a playbook, right? Mm-hmm. The last is this collectivist theory. And it's very focused on democratic deliberation. It's very focused on, like, okay, who's speaking? Who's listening? How does speech work? Um, And I would say of the three theories, it's the least optimistic because it understands that you need to have some infrastructure about how people speak. And this has made its appearance in American history through doctrines like the Equal Time Doctrine, Fairness Doctrine, Mm -hmm. basically saying like, look, we have to make sure that people are actually exposed to different ideas. Now, of course, the idea has fallen out of favor. Um, there, we have a very different – we really leaned towards marketplace and autonomy theories in recent times. But the collectivist idea has been there. And it's not perfect either because so much of what happens on the internet and in speech that's interesting isn't just, you know, politics. Like social commentary, cultural commentary, all that kind of stuff wouldn't fall into the traditional understanding of the collectivist Republican theory of democratic deliberation. But it still matters. Like I still want to hear people's like Prince cover songs and their (laughs) funny memes and cats. Like, you know, I work at BuzzFeed. What would my life be without internet cats? And so those are kind of the theories. And when you look at them, you're like, okay, like there's assumptions about human behavior in them. And there's assumptions about the social conditions of the world. And I kind of wanted to use those as a jumping off point to be like, okay, cool. Like those are theories making assumptions. Can we – what do we observe in the world right now about speech? And can we reverse engineer some other – a different version of a theory or a better fitting, a better suited theory from that. So that's kind of what I was up to in that article. Yeah. And I, and I thought that it's really sort of good and interesting framing because I think for, for most people, you know, even people who, you know, spend a lot of time sort of thinking about free speech and, and the First Amendment and, and just the concepts um, behind it don't necessarily get that far into the, the frameworks and, and, and even like, you know, what do we mean when we talk about the importance of free expression? And, and so, you know, one of the things that, that I noticed in reading the, the paper was that, you know, all three of these theories that you discuss are ones where like, yeah, you know, like I agree with aspects of them. And at times, I, you know, I would, I would argue directly for probably each one of those three in some way or another, mm-hmm. um, but without thinking that they were sort of three different ways of, of looking through this lens or even thinking further in terms of what does that mean and what does that imply about the way, you know, we act as a society or the way in which, you know, discourse um, happens, especially in an online environment. And so I, I, I actually really liked, you know, you laid it out very, very clearly and sort of discussed each of these theories and sort of, you know, the pros and cons, you know, basically as, as you did, did here. And then, you know, in the paper, you then sort of shift into the question of, you know, well, what's happening with online speech? We have these three theories, and then we have, you know, this, this, you know, newish world or, or, you know, potentially very new world of, of the internet where suddenly everyone does have this platform or these platforms on which they can speak out. And it completely, you know, is a very different situation. And, you know, do these three ideas or three frameworks, do they actually fit in the online world? So do you want to discuss some of kind of uh, what you talked about there? Yeah, sure. And so I kind of shift from the theory into like, okay, what do we observe 
what are the social conditions? And I plucked out five. I think they're particularly useful for sort of fake news. There's, I'm sure it's not exhaustive. There's many other facets. <laughs> um, but five was what I could fit into my paper. So I went with that. Um, and the five are filters, communities, amplification, speed, and profit. So, And I'll just take them in turn briefly because sure. I do want people to read the paper. Uh, so, so filters, right, like – there's such an abundance of speech, which is a mystery to no one who's been on the internet for five seconds. Right. You, you won't run out. There's a lot. <laughs> it keeps happening. Um, and because there's so much, you need some way to take it all in. And so I, I, there's kind of two main kinds of filters. There's the explicit filter. It's like what you search for, what you seek out. So if I want to know about popsicles, I go and search popsicles. And that the search is a, uh, an explicit filter on what information comes to me. There's also interrelated uh, the idea of an implicit filter, and it's how algorithms and other platforms shape what you receive. So it may be that when I you know, look for popsicles on Facebook, I'm getting some subset of the popsicle-related information that is out there, but not the full universe of critical right. popsicle information that's out there. <laughs> but both of them shape my world, right? And And you can imagine like different ways of asking an explicit or implicit question shapes your world differently. So if I right. ask, you know, Obama birther is different <laughs> than maybe where was Obama born, right. um, you get different stuff. And so understanding the power of the filters, I think, is a very, very important thing. And, and go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, one thing on that, you know, and I've had this discussion come up with a few people where there are some people who sort of have this this kind of knee-jerk reaction to like, you know, the idea that like filters are bad, like just all information should be out there. And, and you know, I, I think it's pretty easy to, to point out that that's crazy <laughs> right? For, for a variety of factors. But like one example that I've used over and over again is like, you know, I, it's difficult to find anyone who is potentially, I guess, not like a spammer who thinks that spam filters are a bad idea because you quickly recognize like your email would be useless if there were no spam filters because they, you know, very quickly sort of fill up with spam. And so everyone's okay with that kind of filter. And then, you know, that's sort of an indication like actually you're admitting that some kind of moderation mm -hmm. or filters make sense because you need to get rid of the bad information to, order, to get to the good information. And the same thing certainly, you know, is true of, you know, sort of the implicit filters that you were talking about. When you do a search on popsicles, that is because you want good information on popsicles. And if Google applied no filters, you know, and you just got all the crazy information about popsicles, you wouldn't actually find anything useful. Therefore, I think everyone sort of recognizes realistically, even if they say otherwise, that some sort of filters make sense when you're trying to find the right useful information for what it is that you're trying to accomplish. A hundred percent, right? A hundred percent. You may, if you don't have some kind of filter, if you search popsicles, you might be like, what is this? I'm just getting ice cream. <laughs> like, I forget right. this. I don't care. Um, and the other point that I'd make is that filters have always existed, right? Yes. It's just different forms of filters. Like what you see in your school textbook growing up, that was a filter. Someone yep. made that filter. The people around you, filters. What happens on the news, filters. And so similarly, uh, when people are like, screw the filter. I want <laughs> right. all of it. I'm like, that has literally never happened ever. Right. 
that yes. you've had unfiltered access to information. And if you did, your brain would explode. <laughs> like you would know nothing of any use. And right. so I don't have a lot of time for the like <laughs> filters for like no filters ever, the like anti-filter yeah. Yeah. Uh, crew. They're, they're not for me because it's just <laughs> unrealistic and it's never happened. Yeah. So um, – Sort of a really related to the filter concept is this idea of communities, right? Community yep. is so much of what's happening online. And communities used to be necessarily geographically tied, right? Your community were people you chose to associate with at different times or you were forced to associate with by employment or blood or what have you. But now people can form these sort of supplemental communities based on common interest. And I think historically that gets talked about a lot in terms of echo chambers of what people see and what they consume. But right. it's also really important to think about communities online based on common interest as producing information and producing norms of what's true and what's not true. And you see this in ways that um, – well – Here's my judgment. Uh, ways that are bad, <laughs> like anti-vaxxers, like uh -huh. being extremely skeptical of what, quote unquote, mainstream science. And then you see it in other contexts where, you know, like I'm Muslim and I see Muslim communities online saying, here's the news that's not coming out about us. Here's our voice. Here's our truth. Here's how we're speaking. And that's, a, to me, a really great example of how people are organizing to get their experiences out. So, the, right. again, the community, just like the filter, it's not good. It's not bad. But it is a thing that explains the social conditions of what's happening yep. online and both the sort of echo chamber side, which is information consumption, and also the information and norms production side happening in the communities means that there's a really powerful bottom-up way that truth is created and not just top-down from institutions Right. Because there's just a lot more that's happening. So you don't have to trust what's on the news necessarily. You can be like, well, the 17 people on my message board think this. And that that ends up coloring, filtering really what you see as true. But the communities are an interesting space for norms to sort of be created. So that's right. the second one. And, and, and on that one, right, I mean, there have always been these communities. But I think the sort of key point there is the fact that, you know, in the online world and the, the fact that, you know, everyone is basically connected, we have so many more of these kinds of communities that can, can form. And that, that has challenged maybe some assumptions about, you know, about the way information flows um, in that it, it can go in, in very different ways. And you can even form sort of, you know, maybe very extreme or, you know, in both good and bad contexts, um, those communities that weren't necessarily easy to form in, as in the past. Absolutely. And I think they uh, – you're right to point out that they can get quite narrow also. You know, geographically based communities have somewhat of a tempering force because yeah. if you are obsessed with blue cookie jars that play the Star Wars theme, you in your city are probably going to maybe – maybe if you're lucky – find one other person who likes that. But <laughs> right. if you go online, who knows? Maybe there's like 15 of you in the whole world and now you have a community where you feel like it's okay to do that. And, that, <laughs> and you know, it's fine when it's kind of like a frivolous example like that. Yeah. It's powerful and wonderful when it's like a gay kid in a small town realizing, you know, it's okay to, even though I don't know anyone else who's like this. And right. it's less okay when someone's like, oh, I'm into cannibalism. Yay. <laughs> and, and like, and so again, right. like it really, uh, and sort of the, the reinforcing aspect of a community of what's okay and what's not. And, and like that kind of norm policing and norm production is really interesting when you can really have your community be anyone in the world at any place. Yep. 
Totally. So the so the second one is amplification, and I think this one's gotten um, a lot more press uh, and a lot more really intelligent introspection in the literature very recently. Um, but it, it's basically you know how does stuff come from the fringe, these small little groups of talking about blue cookie jars that play the Star Wars theme, to hopscotching up, right? How do you break Mm -hmm. through to sort of more mainstream or more traditional outlets? And that's where, you know, it sort of happens in two parts where you have people percolating in a corner of the internet trying to get the attention of big fish, whether it's through trying to get a hashtag or trying to get an important note in a network like an anchor on uh, a new show or a radio host or something. You're trying to get their attention um, and you get to experiment on how you do that and try all these different channels because people are way more accessible, right? Like before, what are you going to do, show up at their place? Like (laughs) how are you going to find them? But now there's all these ways. People are much more closely connected assuming that you're on the internet. Um, And so it's easier, right, to like get that first step of amplification and to get that attention. And once you do and it's visible enough – and you can convince other people to talk about the phenomenon of what's happening, then all of a sudden you can like really break out into this other realm. And that process, right, of like going from the fringes to the mainstream is fascinating. Um, It's really – and it's fascinating how fast it happens, which we'll talk about in a second. The other part that I think is really remarkable about it is – and this is where I think – First Amendment e-folks and lawyers especially have a lot to learn and absorb from behavioral psychology mm-hmm. is that, you know, so in in behavioral psych, they've known for a very long time that famili- familiarity is what influences the perception of truth, right? So repetition matters mm-hmm. because the more you hear something, the more you're like, hmm, I don't know, could be, like, seems plausible. <laughs> right. um, like maybe our, our ex-president was Kenyan. I don't know. Everyone's talking about it. Right. Um, and, and what's so interesting about that and how that interplays with amplification is that imagine you like wake up in the morning and you check your Facebook feed and you see that – you see you see something. You're like, oh, the sky is, is green today. OK, weird. I don't know why people are saying that. And then you get in your car and you drive to work and you hear a radio DJ being like, well, the sky is green. I don't know. People are saying that on the internet. Um, green sky. OK, bye. And you're like, that's weird. You get to work and someone brings it up at the water cooler. You come home from work. You turn on the TV while you're making dinner and the newscaster is talking about it. And you're like, this is everywhere, Right. Amplification and how it cycles through different platforms really has – that's a lot of different angles to be bombarded with the same green sky message. And you may be like, I don't know. Maybe the sky was green. Like I didn't see it, but it's possible. And that is – that's very interesting, right? We have so many platforms that inundate people with information all the time and it gives that sort of amplification – technique even more saliency i think as a result yeah it sort of reinforces the message so that even if you were maybe skeptical at first you when it's it's reinforced so many times you begin to you know in in some cases if it's false information it's it's sort of what i guess sometimes referred to as gaslighting even Mm -hmm. where you know people begin to doubt their own eyes or or their own sanity um yeah. Right. You're, you're like, uh, maybe. And this is the one. Amplification is really the sort of social condition that I wonder about a lot in terms of the existing theories of the First Amendment, because really, like, the old theories don't talk about this at all. And maybe right. it wasn't as relevant because, frankly, 
you know, there were there were fewer ways to do this. You know, you could you could have a huge protest and then right. have the national media pay attention to it. But the startup cost of doing that, right? Like all the organizing work, all of that meant that not it wasn't happening every day, and it wasn't happening in ways that wouldn't necessarily be very visible to you, right? right. Eventually, and, and so I just think that amplification is a thing where I'm glad really smart people are talking about it and thinking about it, decoding it. Um, but that is, a, I think, a real theoretical hurdle that we kind of need to think about. We're all more interconnected than ever before. And so how does in- information move through us right. is, a, is a big challenge for whatever version of a theor- existing theory or a new flavor we come up with. Um, the last two are kind of quick, uh, mm-hmm. and punning on that, uh, this, the fourth one is speed. Um, <laughs> right. And, um, you know, like intuitively, everyone's like, things are fast on the internet. And like, <laughs> yes, like, yes, they are. That is true. They're, it's relevant because people get to experiment with messaging. If you mm-hmm. have a purposeful message, right, you basically have a free laboratory for PR. You're like, let's try this phrase. Nope, didn't trend. No one likes it. Okay, let's try this phrase. Oh, okay, more people like that one. Okay, cool. You have this real-time lab that just what you wouldn't have had at that scale before, right. which is remarkable. Also, information is sort of designed to move really quickly on these platforms, um, but not because someone's like, oh, I've read this essay. Excellent and deliberative. <laughs> Allow me to share it with you so we can have a reasoned discussion in our comment. That's not why – that's not the only reason people share. Right. People also share as a signaling function, right? Like I, I'll share things from the New York Times because I'm a person who reads New York Times and the London right. Review of Books and other classy lady things. <laughs> and like, you know, like – I have read all of them, everyone in the world who's listening, but not everyone listens to everyone, everything right. that they post or that they share or they retweet. And so there is this speed of how things move online that's different than like clipping out an article from a newspaper or sharing a book with your friend. Right. And the last one is profit. Um, so many platforms have profit fueled by ad dollars at their heart. And where there's money, there are people doing sneaky things, trying to right. manipulate stuff. And and we have to understand that like at the heart of making profit, making money um, for so many of these platforms, because our public square is sustained by many private entities, uh, there are going to be conflicting motives, right? They need our attention. They need our uh, engagement. And that's going to shape certain architectures of where this is all happening. And, like, no one writes about this better than Zainab Dufetche, I think. Yep. Um, Tim Wu writes about this well, too. But, like, the the ad dollars at the heart of it really introduces something that's interesting, especially – and this is, to me, just another sort of tangential point, and then I'll move on. <laughs> it's kind of radical to me that people have introduced a doctrine associated with limiting government power – which is Mm -hmm. the First Amendment, into social platforms that are private companies, as you pointed out at the top. And there's just different incentives. And I think there was a time where that sort of that doctrine was uncritically introduced, not for any bad reasons. And honestly, it made sense. And those are the available thoughts. But now we get to look at it and be like, huh, okay. Like, that was a radical choice that we made. And is there any room to like, evolve or play or, or or just see how that theory is working. Yeah. And that's kind of the last piece because there are different incentives. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, well, one thing though uh, that I will say, not 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 to push back on that because I because I I pretty much agree, but like I do feel that sometimes the whole like profit incentive, um, you know, people sort of bring that up uh, as as you know basically. Uh, being the only issue at play here. You yeah, know, and I, it's I, it, not. It's definitely right. not. And and to, to to some extent, that part bothers me because I know it's not. You know, obviously, you know, it may be true in some cases, but, you know, I think for the most part, you know, even the people who, who run the big platforms where these issues are, are, are very much being debated, you know, they're not making decisions solely on, you know, what is going to, to bring in the most revenue. And, and even then, even if they are, there are some competing forces, which is that, you know, and we've seen this play out certainly with, with Twitter and Facebook quite a bit where it's like, well, if I'm just focused on the short term of what will bring me the most users slash ad revenue today, that mm-hmm. may so poison the well that tomorrow everyone goes away, you know, in a, in a very exaggerated fashion. I think that there is some recognition that that long term sustainability is also important. And, and that means, you know, not just going for the, you know, what is going to get me the most direct profit today. And so there are some sort of countervailing forces Mm -hmm. outside of that. But that's just sort of a pet peeve from, you know, in in response to the people who are just like, well, of course, they're going to do that because it gives them the most ad revenue. Um, Yeah, of course. It's definitely it's worthwhile to push back against the people who are like follow the money like that's <laughs> right. what's happening because it's not just that I was I think there's people who come to the platforms to sort of have their own mini get rich quick plans like yes. the Macedonian teenagers creating lots sure. of fake news but I do think that um those end up being over the over the long ish run not that we've had these platforms for really that long like maybe two decades ish coming up close on it yeah. that those are a flash in the pan there's always going to be people be people trying to make a quick buck but um and and we can deal with those once we identify them but i think you're right to say that the platforms have a a lot of competing interests right yeah. and it's not just making money though that is important because they yes. are businesses yeah Absolutely. I'm not I'm not denying that that incentive is part of it. I, I just think that, again, you know, and, and you know, yes, my contribution to this discussion is basically <laughs> like, uh, you know, a little more nuance, which is, not, you know, which is what I like so much about your your papers that it is it is a very sort of nuanced discussion. And so I'm not I'm not pushing back on you so much as pushing back on on. The, the comments that I'm hearing in my head that I mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. people people are going going to raise. But anyways, all right. So so let's move on. So those those are the sort of you know five theories that, or five you know uh, concepts that you discuss in the paper about mm-hmm. you know online speech. Um, and so so we have the sort of three sort of traditional frameworks. We have these sort of five issues around online speech today. What next? You know, I so a great question. Um, <laughs> I, well, I think there's like there's like like a couple other things to think about. The first is any theory that we are going to adopt in this space has to take those things into account and also understand that the players that we have right now, it's not just the person in the state, which is right. how so much of the discussion has been framed historically. There's really a kaleidoscope of power relationships, right? There's the person in the state that they happen to be in. Mm-hmm. There is a person and the company or companies mm-hmm. that are hosting their speech on which they're speaking, the Facebook, Twitters, Googles, Snapchats, so on and so forth of the world. Then there's also how states 
interact with those companies, right? So when people are like, just yep. regulate Facebook, you're like, really? Really? Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Just like that's a very particular power dynamic. And uh, and and it's really like how states, plural, interact with companies, plural, because there's a lot of states. Yep. There's a lot of different countries and they're all – exerting various and often competing pressures on these transnational companies that often or, or may have, you know, revenue that exceeds like the, the countries that they're operating in, right? They're right. basically like, um, I think it's Anupam Chander wrote a piece called Facebookistan, where he's like, look, yep. like, <laughs> it's real big. Um, and so like, we're playing with these constellations of actors. And and so all of this is happening, and we have before we come up with a theory of power, we have to say like, okay, how how do these relationships shift all the time? And I yeah. think the way to walk out of this tangle, right? You're like, oh my god, so many pieces. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> is to really step back and think, actually, like, what are the guiding stars? What are the values that we care about? Because that's yeah. what's at heart. What's at the heart of these very optimistic theories, right? You have to start with what you want, and 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 and. I would posit that many – what I want at least is like some place where deliberation and debate actually happens. Um, I think that was at the heart of the presumption in the marketplace of ideas. But yep. you can look at how platforms are set up and be like, OK, is this the best way for debate and deliberation to happen? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. How do we get people to actually interact? Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know – at the heart of both the autonomy theory and the, the marketplace of idea theory is this real aversion to censorship. Like we don't yep. want to shut anyone down. And that this is where I think Zainab makes such a brilliant point, which is the social conditions of these platforms, all those five factors we list out, means that some of these principles look a little bit different now, right? So, yep. th so the idea before was that, okay, we don't believe in censorship, Speech is relatively scarce. Not everyone can speak. So when they do, we don't want sh to shut them down. So we're not going to prohibit speech. But the thing that's actually scarce now is attention, right? right? And so speech is abundant, but attention is scarce. So how do you can you construct platforms around the idea of better maintaining att attention? Yep. I would add in a way that leads to actual deliberation and debate and engagement with each other. Yep. And that seems like really like that's the world we're going towards. And yeah. I care a lot about in sort of figuring out what that world looks like. I will say that I think we have to spend more time understanding what's actually happening at the platforms. A lot of this work that we're doing now is like observationally. And I, w I heavily relied on really smart reporters who are doing deep dives, analyses on these places to sort of be like, OK, this is what I'm observing. This is what they're observing. We don't have great data sets directly from Facebook or Twitter or other places. We don't really understand how they make decisions to take things, what they take down and what they don't. There's definitely discrepancies about when they take things down, when they don't. And so I think introducing a concept of due process, right? How does yep. this work would really be helpful in fleshing out this theory of like, okay, we care about, we care about maximizing deliberation yep. and discourse because that's what matters to like get towards truth. We have to know how the platforms think about that too. And that's not easy um, yeah. <laughs> at all. It's not – I'm definitely not like here's my fast solution, guys. Right. Um, but I think it's important – I think that the work we kind of socially need to do is like, OK, what are the norms around speech that we care about? Like don't use the language of the First Amendment. Don't use the language of anything. Just like stop like 
put it all down. Put your toys down for a second. <laughs> what do we all care about? What are we trying to get to? How does that concept work with what's actually happening? And then can we make that fit? Yeah. Um, I will say cards on the table that I'm sort of a collectivist, like a if there was like a neo-collectivist <laughs> type of approach where um, – I care about deliberation, but not just for political things. Like, right. also, who is the best Kardashian? What is the <laughs> like? I care about this in sort of a broader cultural sense too. And right. I think thinking about who's listening, who's speaking, and how they're speaking to each other is really important to me. Um, but I want to put some flesh on the bones of even that, and I think that's a much longer project. But I want yeah. to hear your thoughts. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this is definitely something that I've been been thinking a lot about too, and and um, and I should say I'm 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 not exactly sure when this podcast is going up, um, but there is, you know, I think more people are starting to think about this. There's mm -hmm. actually on February second, which probably will be after this podcast goes up, um, but I'm not promising that. So if you're listening and February 2nd has already passed, I apologize. <laughs> um, but um, th there are actually two conferences. It's, it's unfortunate that they're both the same day. They're both February 2nd, one at uh, Santa Clara University and one at, at BU, um, you know, on the other side of the country, um, both really looking at this issue. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the one in Santa Clara is the one I'm more familiar with. And it, they basically have all these different platforms coming in to discuss, you know, how they moderate and how they think about these things and the kinds of decisions that they make. And, oh, amazing. Part of the plan is that they're actually expected to share some of the details that they don't normally share um, because of, of this very thing, this, this very idea of like, you know, we need to start thinking about this thing at, at a larger scale. And each company sort of, you know, uh, you know, walking through the darkness themselves is not necessarily uh, the, the the right way to figure out kind of best practices. Um, so, so I'm excited about that that there is this discussion that's starting to happen. The other thing, you know, you brought up the idea of due process, and this is one that that I've been talking about and thinking about a lot more lately. And and um, you know, it's almost two years ago now. I moderated a panel that was like the top lawyers from from three different platforms discussing like how they make moderation choices and one thing that came out during that discussion and we we turned that into a podcast so if you go back i don't know when it was but a couple of years ago <laughs> we, we had we had a discussion on it you know one of the things that came out was that um uh alex fierce from medium um, brought up the fact that like when they're making decisions on like content moderation, they basically try to have sort of an internal trial mm -hmm. where he sort of appoints someone like you represent the interest of keeping it up and you sort of represent the interest of taking it down or something along those lines. And they go through some sort of due process. And, and oh, my wow. question, yeah, which is interesting. And, and my question to him though was like, well, that's great and and fascinating, and I'm you know I want to learn more about it. But I'm also curious if if any of that is ever done publicly, mm -hmm. or even if just like the end results, right? And and so I sort of you know think about it as compared to like our judicial system, which mm -hmm. is for the most part very very transparent. Mm -hmm. And if you you know you have a trial, everyone sort of gets to make their case, and the documents and the discussions tend to be you know mostly public. And then the decision, you know the the whatever the order is at the end is also public, and it's a, and there's a public record. And in some cases, it's you know becomes binding on future uh, uh, rulings and things like that. And like that's an interesting model. 
um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's very transparent and it sort of explains the process and it allows people to make their case and adds this sort of element to due process. And so I'm, I'm like intrigued by like, could we do that at the platform level? Though I also recognize like that creates a whole other, you know, list of challenges and potential problems, including like, you know, I mean, the judicial system is already very, very costly and, and, you know, a pain in the ass in a lot of ways. And do we want to subject people to that same process just to like, you know, keep your Twitter account? Like, maybe not. <laughs> um, but, but it does feel like, you know, it would be interesting to see if, if there are, you know, are more ways to, to add elements of due process and transparency to this process that I think would be really interesting. Um, Absolutely. I love the idea of like, I mean, it's a great thought experiment, right? Like what does a speech court look like? Right. And could you make it lean? And, and that kind of, so I'm, I'm very much an optimist in this space. Like I think, <laughs> me too. you know, I, I'm like, I really am because it's not as if this is the first time that speech has been real messy, yeah. right? Like, you know, in, like the 1890s through the 20s, really, like no one expected journalism to be uh, objective. And I think about that a lot because I work in a media organization and I'm a media lawyer. You know, yeah. everyone had their like weird pamphlets and yellow journalism. <laughs> and then these norms of objectivity, these norms of like what society needs evolved. And then we had this golden era that we like built all these laws based on. And now we're like, mm, things are messy again. <laughs> what do we yeah. do? But we have a real opportunity. And also like just I think it's the immense amount of knowledge that platforms have really principled like journalists, activists, lawyers who really care about speech um, and the value of speech across the world, behavioral scientists who like understand people <laughs> and like yeah. how people actually work, not just like how we hope people work and who've, who've had done this work for the last, you know, m- many years, but like really interesting with the last hundred years. We have the ability to build something really special. It's just – it's going to be messy. And so I don't yeah. get that upset when people are like – well, we have this terrible election and this and this. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like messiness happens, but we're playing on a longer scale. So let, yeah. we, we can get there. I, I like I believe in us. Yeah, no, I, and I totally agree. And I, I mean, you know, my my last thought on all of this is that, like, I think this is something that people are, you know, really starting to think about. And, mm-hmm. it's you know, not just this, this sort of conference and and your paper and and, um, you know, what Zainab has, has written, been writing and talking about for, for years now. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, it, it, you know, there's there's a there are a whole bunch of really interesting things. And, you know, um you know, there, there's there's even some some more and more research, and and some of which we're we're you know trying to help out with, um, in terms of really understanding like you know incentives that are involved here, and and there are some interesting experiments, and not all of them are going to succeed, but like you know there I don't know if you heard about this, it 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 doesn't exist anymore because it got bought out, but there was this platform called Parlio. Um, oh no. Yeah, so the, these guys created it uh, a few years ago, and it, it, eventually they sort of um, got aqua hired, and the platform shut down by uh, Quora. But mm-hmm. the entire idea was like, could we build a platform that is like for respectful debate and discussion? Um, and and they had like a few little features sort of built in to sort of incentivize basically good behavior and thoughtful discussion. And, you know, uh, not all of them work, but the fact that they were experimenting with that. So it had things like, you know, uh, basically on the top of every page, it sort of reminded you of the 
the sort of core principles of having oh, wow. you know, like nice, you know, kind debates and, and, and things like that. And, you know, and, and even like on TechTurt itself, like we've discussed like some of the, you know, sort of minor nudges and incentives that we've put in place. Like, you know, we don't have like up and down voting on our comments. Instead, we have buttons that say like insightful or funny. Mm-hmm. And that's because we're trying to encourage people to be insightful or funny. And mm-hmm. I think just having those, you know, those mechanisms. Yeah, those it, nudges. It, it's just a little tiny nudge towards better behavior. And I think, you know, as more and more people think about these things, we're going to see more and more experiments of that nature. And maybe that leads us to to a world where, um, you know, you, you do tend to see, you know, more good behavior incentivized. And so, you know, but 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 I agree that I think we're just at the very, very beginning yep. of a very long process in which, you know, that will happen. And then, of course, you know, someone's going to figure out how to game it and do something bad and that's going to happen and people will adjust and change. Um, but but I think it's it's a really interesting and important discussion. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad that that you're a, a part of it. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? This is the beginning. This is the dawn. Yes. of having these conversations like i don't know i know you've been in these conversations for like pretty much forever right imagine <laughs> yeah. having a conversation that like questions the marketplace of ideas 5 years ago yeah people would be like you're a heretic like or or, <laughs> or are you european and right. people would, like not even be here for it right yeah. and now we get to be like no 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 okay i'm not i'm not saying throw it out i'm saying there's some assumptions in there And I don't know about all of them. And like, I think it's a wonderful thing, but I agree that it is, it's the dawn and there's going to be some temporary solutions and some mistakes. And I, I guess I would just caution everybody and, you know, everyone who's working on this, everyone who's listening, like there isn't going to be a silver bullet solution. It's not coming. It's not Facebook making this choice and it's all fixed. It's just, and we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here either, right? There's just going to be experimentation is the name of the game. And that's what we're doing. And being open to that, I think will, will hopefully help us and help really good people get in on the mix. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's a, a great way to close out the podcast. So um, once again, thanks so much for, well, one, for writing the paper and then for, for <laughs> Thank joining you. us on the podcast. This is a really, really interesting discussion. And uh, I'm sure that this is a topic that we will be discussing again and again in the future and would love to have you back on the podcast. Uh, oh, as, the pleasure would be all mine. Thank you so much. So thanks again. And thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week with uh, some other topic. I don't know what. So, <laughs> thanks again. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap.